Hosanna, a fellowship of Christians. Good morning. It is a good day to be inside together, worshiping together. Thank you, Jeff. Every day is a good day to do that. You know, every Sunday we get to do that. Good to see you. If you heard the message from last week, you heard Tony and Joanne talk about how God, how God reaches us. God Almighty himself empties himself. He humbles himself. He lowers himself to come to us, to dwell with us, to relate to us. He leaves the 99 to find the one. He pursues us. He serves. He builds us up. He encourages. We, on the other hand, well, our tendency is to build ourselves up. We want people and God to conform to our needs and our wants. We want to be served. We fill ourselves up. But what a contrast that is. And what an amazing demonstration of love that Christ models for us in his life here on the earth. And you know what? He enables us to live that way as well, doesn't he? Such a generous God. Even reckless
love those simple kinds of truths. I grew up singing a song, as most of you probably did, that it was so simple it was profound. Jesus loves me. You could finish it. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's another phrase that Job came up with that he concluded uh, that is so simple that it is also profound. Paraphrase, this is what Job came up with and his conclusion was, God is God and I am not. <laughs> that was his conclusion. Jo Last week, Joanne used that phrase, God is God. Um, so if the question is, who is God? The answer probably won't satisfy you. Um, because a lot, some, of the, some of the time in scripture, God just said, I am. <laughs> Moses is like, what if the Egyptians ask who sent me? And God said, tell them I am sent you. I mean, that would convince Pharaoh, right? <laughs> but I love the way God simplifies things for us. He just gets right to the point. I am. God is God. I mean, we could argue with that, and we do. Um, and he lets us. He's not opposed to us arguing with him or disagreeing with him even. He's not going to smush us. He's not going to disown us for arguing with him and being upset or angry. He's not, you know, so he lets us have it out with him. And, um, but even when we get answers we're not satisfied with or no answers at all, we're going to come most likely to the same conclusion because God doesn't reveal his plan, he reveals himself. Ruth Bell Graham said, I lay my wise before your cross in worship, kneeling, my mind too numb for thought, my heart beyond all feeling, and worshiping, realize that I am knowing you don't need a why. We'll come to this conclusion sooner or later that in knowing him, we don't need to know a why. Why? Because God is God. And he is good. And he is trustworthy. And he is kind. And he is fill in the blank. So this is Job, Job's conclusion at the end of all of his trials, his struggles, and the tribulations, and the arguments, and the wrestling, and the doubting, and the questioning. Let's read this together. This is Job's conclusion. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. Job saw God. And that was enough. Lord, help us see. We want to sing a song for you.
falls like a curtain On the things I once called certain And I have to say the words I fear the most I just don't know And the questions without answers Come and paralyze the dancer So I stand here on the stage Afraid to move Afraid to fall Oh, but fall I must On this truth that my life has been born from
today. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you that you emptied yourself. And you came and you pursued us. Right now, God, we do want to make you the king of our hearts. We want to empty ourselves. You have shown us. You have demonstrated to us. You enable us. You empower us to do just that. We empty ourselves, Lord, so that we can have room to be filled by you, to be filled by your word, to be filled by your spirit. More of you, less of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you this morning. Oh, there's Jeff. And hello to our friends on the live stream this morning. And we're going to continue on with worship as we give our offerings. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. And let me pray before we take up our offering. God, we thank you. Truly, how great you are. And the reckless love that you have for us, that you lavish us with is a beautiful thing, Lord. And we pray that our hearts would be open to receive all that you have for us. And Lord, we pray and give you thanks for the generosity of our congregation to give back to you. That needs can be met. That your name can be proclaimed. So God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, you can pass the buckets. Our change for change bucket in the back is for our friends, Harry and Penka in Bulgaria, to help with their Operation Christmas Child and the shoe boxes. Remember, we started giving and sending them money because things cost a lot less over there in Bulgaria, and they can get the things they need for their shoe boxes. Today, the spiritual abuse class continues with Joanne leading that over in the fellowship hall and online. Also, this Tuesday is a blood drive being held here at Hosanna. We regularly hold blood drives here, and if you haven't been listening to the news, um, it's really needed. Blood is really needed right now. So go online, check our online bulletin, all the details. You can find out how to go ahead and come on Tuesday and give blood. Also, we are excited to announce that coming the beginning of October is something that's near and dear and loved by this congregation. Can anybody guess what it is? What do we do every fall? Hosanna at the movies. Now, you may be wondering, why in the world am I telling you that at the end of August? Because we have a whole month of September before we get to October because we want you to get it on your calendars. We want you to get it in your heads that the beginning of October is Hosanna at the Movies. But the really cool thing about Hosanna at the Movies this year is the Friday night before the Sunday morning service, we are going to be showing the entire movie that they're going to, Joanne and Tony are going to be talking about. Yeah, you're nodding your heads like, yeah, good idea, right? Yes, we're going to be showing the movie here in the auditorium, 
And that way, those of you who don't do well with getting it online and things like that, you can all join us on a Friday night for Hosanna at the movies to see the whole movie. And then come Sunday morning, and Joanna and Tony will be giving us all the spiritual insights in that. And you know what another cool thing is about this? Guess what's going to be happening with our Kid Venture kids? Kid Venture kids are going to be doing their own Hosanna at the movies the same time that Friday night. So it's going to be like a whole family thing. The adults will be in here. The kids will have their Hosanna at the movies. And it's going to be fun. So mark your calendars beginning October 3rd. The first Friday night will be October 1st. And with that, I'm going to invite Tony and Joanne to come up and give us the message for today. Morning. I know what you want to say in response to that last announcement. Oh my God. Uh, Right? No. No. No, I guess not. Let's start with that phrase this morning. That's good try to segue into the I tried. I'm going to try here. Good try. This is one of the most popular text message acronyms out there. And it's taken on a bit of a life of its own. Anyone use it? No, you don't have to admit to that. But um, it's not an expression of devotion. No. No. (laughs) People talk about God all the time using this phrase. (laughs) Or maybe a shorter one, oh God, which is sometimes a swear word, sometimes a term of disgust, oh God, sometimes an expression of (laughs) awe. And sometimes even an explanation, exclamation, I can say that, exclamation of passion. You know what I mean. Anyone remember the old George Burns movies with this name? I'm showing my age here a little bit. My mother. I was really young when that one came out. (laughs) So was George Burns. My mother disapproved of the use of that phrase, and she disapproved of these movies, because that was taking the Lord's name in vain from her understanding. And so the people who use these phrases, who talk about, oh my God, don't even believe in God. And by the way, did you know this? Atheists are the most rapidly growing faith group in the United States. Followed closely by agnostics, and our agnostics are those who say that there may be a God, they're just not sure. Joanne's going to get to this a little bit later, but... It might be good to note that I call them a member of a faith group. To be an atheist is, is to be a person of faith. Mm-hmm. It is an expression of faith. She'll explain why that's the case. So we have on the one hand all these more, people who are talking about... Can I just about, say it takes more faith to be an atheist? And then we'll talk about that. There we go. Okay. So you got all these people talking about God in ways that are not necessarily sacred. On the other hand, let me give you an example. I have a friend who's Orthodox Jewish. He will not even write the word God on, uh, you know, on a document or on Facebook. What he and, and, and other people like him do is leave the O, leave a, a hyphen in the O, and they do that out of respect. Because that tradition comes from the ancient Jews who felt it inappropriate that human lips should ever utter the sacred name of God, yeah. Yahweh. Do you know that this is how the, the word Adonai came to be used. Adonai became a replacement. When they're reading scripture and they were reading out loud in the synagogue, whenever they saw Yahweh, they would replace it with Adonai because to say the name was considered to be too holy and a little bit too profane for humans to do, so they would replace it with that word, which Christians have picked up on mm-hmm. as well. 
So because God is holy and we are not. God is God and we are not. So there, there, there we go. And then there are, this gets more complicated. We want to talk about God, okay? There are people of other faiths who might also speak of God, but mean something very different than what you or I might. There's Allah, the Muslims, who is in some ways like Yahweh of the Old Testament, and in some ways not. And there's Buddha, once a living person, who not all Buddhists regard as divine, but some Buddhists consider him to be so, or one of many gods. And then there are the 10 million gods of Hinduism. And Shiva and Krishna and Vishnu are the, the primary three, but some Hindus add Jesus to the mix. Why not? You've got a bunch of other ones on the shelf. There's the great spirit of the Plains Indians, and then there's the impersonal ground of being of 20th century philosophers. And, and let's not forget the ancient gods of the North, like Thor, who have become quite popular in movies of late. <laughs> You know, maybe, the movies and see about Norse gods. Maybe we should include Thor in We the should. And Loki, the trickster god. <laughs> or the gods of classical mythology, who have always bored me, but uh, Zeus and Apollo and Dionysus still remember to this day. People still talk about those folks. How can you be bored by mythology anyway? <laughs> <laughs> now, with all those different understandings of God, names of God, ways of talking about God, how can we, mm-hmm. us kind of folks, talk with, about God with people? How can we talk about God in a way that honors who they are, what they think or don't think about God? And yet also invite them to experience the God that we have come to know and love. Well, we're going to take up those questions today. Last week, we introduced a new series called Living Conversations. We got a little bit passionate. I know I did. About, and the, the idea was about talking to people about anything. Because it's gotten hard lately, and we acknowledge that. But we said we were going to follow up that general introduction uh, with some, uh, some messages and talking about specific topics related to our faith. I keep wanting to go back and talk about last week a little bit more. So I'll just say, I posted that on my Facebook page, and if you did not catch last week, please do, because you will hear not only some passion, but maybe some core Hosanna values expressed in that one. But anyway, we were going to follow up with some messages talking about specific topics related to our faith. How do we talk to people about X, Y, or Z? So here's the first one. This is the most basic. How do we talk to people about God? It's, it's ironic, isn't it? It's one of the most talked about topics in the history of the world, but it might be a topic we avoid the most. Just because it gets so dicey. But we want to, don't we? Don't we? For those of us who experience God, for those of who know God, who love God, inviting people into what we've experienced, isn't that a deep desire? Mm-hmm. But a major reason we don't do it is uncertainty about how. How do you talk about God in a way that doesn't freak someone out? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or freak ourselves out? <laughs> I can't do that! So that's why I'm going to give you today some very practical advice on how to have conversations about God. And perhaps, perhaps in the process, we'll help you clarify your own understanding of that. Who God is to you. And what you most want to say to God. We heard what Job said to God at the end of a long conversation that they had. What do you want to need to say to God? Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to organize this message around some common questions about God. We've got four of them. We're going to use as our biblical example, in this case, not Jesus, but the Apostle Paul. 
and how he talked with some Greeks in Athens one day about the God that he knew. So a little background to this. He had, he had shown up in Athens because Paul was wandering his way around Greece. And he did in Athens what he had done in pretty much every city he ever went to. First thing he does is he goes to synagogues and talks to his Jewish brothers and sisters and says, Hey, let me tell you about Jesus, this guy you heard about from back in Israel. Let me tell you what, who he really was and what he said. And then he would go out in public places and he would talk about Jesus. And he would always inevitably create some controversy and they would throw him in jail or flog him or yell at him or something. Athens had a little different experience, however. They were known for their schools of philosophy. Aristotle had been there, Plato. So, Socrates. And the philosophers would gather and they would debate ideas. They weren't afraid of new ideas. They found them interesting. They would do most of that debating in front of other, in front of other people, in, in front of eager crowds, on a flat outcropping of rocks known as the Oropagus, also known as Mars Hill. It's not terribly flat anymore. It's tricky walking around on this, but there is a small hill underneath the big hill. Um, I got to, be, to go there, actually, about a year and a half ago, just as the pandemic was breaking out. Um, so anyway, some of these philosophers invited Paul to come. Come, come to the Mars Hill, come to Oropagus, and we want to hear for ourselves this new teaching that's created such a buzz out there in the streets of Athens. Mm -hmm. So he took them up on that invitation to have a living conversation about God. Yeah. He was actually, Paul was actually invited into a conversation about God with some of those really smart people, those Athenian philosophers. He had been preaching, as Tony said, publicly, about the resurrection of Jesus in the streets. Um, and they were intrigued enough. So they came, they invited Paul into this conversation. And what we want to notice is how did he have the conversation? He first, he meets them on their own terms, right? They, he goes with them to that place where the, the Areopagus, where they met routinely. That's where they had their conversations. That's where they were thinking about all of these ideas. And he, so he, he meets them on their own terms, on their own turf, and then engages them in a way that draws them in rather than drives them away. Paul starts by showing them that he's been paying attention to them. He's been paying attention to their city. He does not have any preconceived prejudices. He does not have any judgments that are already formed against them. Like, oh, these stupid people, I'm just here to enlighten them. No, he simply notices who and what is around him through God's eyes. Now, how do we know that? Watch this. We're going to start reading in Acts 17, verse 22. So, Paul stood before the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see you are very religious. <clears throat> the word there means devout. I see your people of faith. I see you're very religious in all respects. What? He's complimenting them. For as I went around and observed closely your objects of worship. Again, these are statues or altars to pagan gods. Big temples that you could see if that picture was still up there. Up on the Acropolis to all this pantheon of gods. And he's saying, well, I went around and I closely observed closely your objects of worship. He's speaking respectfully about them. He isn't standing there going, you Satan worshipers. 
We need to destroy this stuff first before I can even preach the, the gospel to you. He's not doing that. He, he's showing them that he's taking them very seriously, so seriously that he wants to give them some understanding about one of the gods that they don't know yet. Watch this. As I went around and observed closely your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you. In this way, what's Paul doing? He's showing himself as their friend, as a peer, one who respects them and respects their vast knowledge about so many gods and religions. He even compliments them on their desire not to leave anybody out. He's this acknowledgement. Here's an altar to the unknown God. That is, by the way, the real altar. Oh, it that, is. The one that's, yeah, that little slide. I have a bigger picture of it, I think, uh, uh, later on. But that is, that is actually, it's still there. You can see it. Okay, very cool. God. Tony did that part of the PowerPoint. Um, see, we, we learn, we even learn uh, on Sunday mornings. But he's acknowledging their acknowledgement that they don't know everything. What's he doing? He is affirming them right up front. He's, he's affirming a kind of humility in, in them. And then he humbly offers them an opportunity to learn something that he knows about this unknown God. The unknown God who's been there all along, by the way, and whom he says they're already worshiping. This God that you worship even though you don't realize who it is. I'm gonna sh- I have something to share with you about that. He, so he's inviting them into a very different conversation than the one they invited him into. Paul's not simply going to give them some new ideas to consider about a new God. Paul's going to offer them an answer to a question that still comes up again and again and again in conversation today. First question, does God exist? To paraphrase a C.S. Lewis remark, God is not the sort of thing one can be moderately interested in. After all, think about it. Let's use our Athenian minds. If God does not exist, there's no reason at all to be interested in God, right? Atheists are right. Why bother? But if God does exist, then coming to know that God and learning how to relate to that God would be extremely important, wouldn't it? I mean, because after all, your life, your well-being, maybe even your next breath would be dependent on that God, right? But so many people today are like those ancient Athenian philosophers, walking among altars of all kinds every day that are erected to gods with all kinds of names, discussing ideas and philosophies about those gods, even acknowledging there may even be other gods that that we don't know anything about. Yet taking it also nonchalantly that as if it doesn't matter whether any of those gods actually exist. Oh, but it does matter. It matters greatly that God exists. Because if God does not exist, life has no ultimate meaning. Sure, yeah, we can find meaning in 
some people in some relationships and in family in in the work we do in community in helping others our hobbies and the whole list of things yeah but but see this meaning that kind of meaning it's temporary because none of that meaning lasts longer than the people the relationships the work the family the compassion or the hobbies etc do it's temporary meaning see all of that will end in death All of us will end in death. So if God does not exist, life is ultimately meaningless, and it doesn't matter whether we exist. And if our existence doesn't matter, then it follows that the way we live our ultimately meaningless existence doesn't matter either, right? Oh, what about what morality? What, does it matter? No, we're just going to live however we want to live, and we're going to treat people however we want to treat them, because that's what they do to us, because their lives are just as meaningless as ours. Mm. See, as our world increases in uncertainty and unpredictability, atheism, as Tony said, is also increasing. And as a former atheist myself who thought a lot about it before declaring myself an atheist as a young adult. You know what I know? I know that there are lots of reasons people choose not to believe that God exists. Like, there's not sufficient evidence to prove that God exists in the way that they want it proven. That scientific evidence and explanations in many ways have made belief in God unnecessary. Like, we don't need mythological explanations about some God somewhere, because now we understand. Science answers everything. As Tony will talk about in a minute, here's a huge one. This was, this was major for me and why I chose atheism when I was younger. That it's the problem of evil and suffering. Huge. And it's not surprising at this time in you know, all of what's happening in our world today and virus and all of it, 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 then we shouldn't be surprised that people are finding their way away from God, right? Another big one, another big reason that people choose atheism is that Christian arguments for God's existence are not convincing. They were at one time in history. Not so much now. So listen, rather than dismiss atheists, why don't we stop offering them arguments and invite them into meaningful conversations about the existence of God instead? I mean, invite them into conversations. Or maybe they'll invite us into conversations which give them better reasons for faith than for atheism. How about we think about it long enough to actually come up with some really good, meaningful reasons that connect with people today. Why faith is a better choice than atheism because it actually does take more faith to believe there is no God. Because, uh, as I'll say in just a moment, um, yeah, too much to say. It's a statement of absolute certainty. There is no God, which is claiming 
quite a bit of knowledge by the person themselves. So why don't we just start by following Paul's example? Just to be genuinely interested in them, in their lives, where they live, what they do, having a relationship with them. I mean, meeting them like Paul did, meeting them where they are, being curious about their reasons for choosing atheism without being afraid of it, without thinking, oh my gosh, I can't ask them that because then what am I gonna say? No, just listen, listen before speaking, and then when we do speak, to be respectful, to do what Paul did, to take what they already know seriously. And then gently, remember last week, we talked about the attitude of Jesus. Humility, gentleness, gently. Then offer them just some of what you know that they may not know back and forth, a real conversation. So, for example, um, most atheists, I don't think, most atheists don't realize that atheism is not intellectually supportable. So in conversation, you know what? We can honor their deep desire to know what's true by simply saying something like this. You know a lot. You have some really good reasons for choosing to be an atheist. You might even say, sometimes I wonder too. I have my own questions about that. But humor me for a moment. How much of all the knowledge that humans have accumulated through all history about everything, the universe, everything, how much of all of that knowledge do you think you yourself possess? Listen, no thinking person would ever say, I know all of it, right? They might say, half, holy cow, then you are the most brilliant person I have ever met, because that's a lot of knowledge. Or even a tenth, or even one percent would be an incredible amount of knowledge, right? But you just ask the question, how much of everything that can be known do you know? And whatever the answer is, the response is the same. Well, since you don't know everything, is it possible that God might exist, but you just don't know it yet? without an attitude, without condescending. I mean, honestly, this is real. In essence, the Athenian philosophers were already there. They were intelligent enough to recognize that atheism is a philosophical impossibility because humans simply can't have 100% certainty about things which cannot be seen or measured. That's why it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. See, these philosophers, they were wise and humble enough to admit that and make room for the unknown God. Of course, Paul was himself humble. He didn't pressure them to make a decision for Christ on the spot. He wasn't putting tracts in their faces and give them four spiritual laws. They weren't embedded yet anyway. I mean, this is Paul. Listen, he didn't quote Bible verses at them. Although he did quote their own poets, pagan poets, he quoted them and affirmed that those people were speaking the truth. This is challenging stuff. It's good stuff. And although some of those philosophers discounted Paul, you know, there's scoffers, it's fine. 
It didn't bother Paul because there were some others who were intrigued enough to want to continue the conversation. They said, hey, come on, let's talk some more. I know some people who haven't given up on the idea of God, but they've walked away from what they thought was a really ugly God. Yeah. Probably know some folks like that, too. So that leads us to our second question. If God exists, is God good? Now, just stop for a moment. What's your first instinctive response to that question? Now, we were singing it this morning. <laughs> God, you're good. So being Hosannans, you may respond with an enthusiastic, yes, yes, God is good. Most people don't. Yeah. Seriously. Most people think of God's power first and foremost. And by the way, God's power is good news. We sang it that this morning as well. But, but most, most people also believe that God makes everything happen in their lives and in the world. Studies reveal this. The mm-hmm. Polls, statistics. Here's the problem with that. Much of what happens in our lives and in the world doesn't feel very godly or very good. If God is responsible for all the rapes and murders, if God's to blame for all the abuse and addictions, if God is responsible for the wars and the pandemics and natural disasters, wow, it gets a little bit hard to believe that God is good. Yes. And that's what... Many people have been hearing from the church for a long time now. God is all-powerful. God's making everything happen. And by the way, God is good. And they're going, hold it here a minute. Those two things are not coinciding very well. Yeah, like years ago. Yeah, that tidal wave that hit Thailand was because they're such sinners. Yeah. Are they more sinful than any other country in the world? And Why if, isn't there a tidal wave on the whole world? And if God is wiping out people by the hundreds <laughs> of thousands because they're sinners, then what kind of God? Oh, yes, you know, this, this is a good God. So you can see the dissonance here. People are saying, I'm not sure I can buy into all this anymore. It, it can get worse. If you believe that God, like Joanne was just a good illustration, mm-hmm. zaps you when you get out of line, yeah. that makes it even harder. Oh, yeah, God feels good. You might bow in submission to that kind of God. You might call him what? Lord, master? But you'd be unlikely to snuggle up close to him and call him friend. You'd be afraid of that God. And many people, many, many people are. Or they have walked away from such a fearful God. And then it gets worse. You add to that all the religious people, thank you for not being that kind, but the religious people who take it upon themselves to play God, to judge. Yep. To shake, it, shake an angry fist at evildoers, to unload on someone on social media, or maybe sometimes to take even more drastic action. And God's reputation takes an even bigger hit. Yeah. This is 2021. What happened 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. 21 young men hijacked planes, crashed them into buildings, killing 3,000 people, all in the name of God. Yep. And we might not say, hey, not my God, but. I tell you, for people out there who are not making these distinctions, yes. <coughs> it still looks like religious people going nuts. I believe that this is a real turning point for our culture. I may be wrong in this. I've said this a number of times. I think before 9-11, it had already begun to shift, but still, before 9-11, most people still thought of God as good and religion as a way of becoming a better person. For centuries, that was the idea. If you did not believe in the previous centuries, you would say so maybe apologetically or even defensively because the general consensus out there was that you would have trouble being a good person without religion. 
one of the most persuasive ways to evangelize people was to tell them they could be a better person. Mm-hmm. They became religious. In Christian terms, we would say, hey, you can be free of all your sin. This is the basic Billy Graham order call. It's the call that made many of us here Christians to begin, to begin with as well. So it's all true. Yes, we do become more holy. We do become more Christ-like. We do become more godly when we follow Christ. But it's far less persuasive out there anymore. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying it doesn't connect with people in the way that it used to a generation ago or 100 years ago or 200 or 300 or 400. For nearly 2,000 years, this was the central argument. And in one generation, it switched. For the first time in our history, the majority of people believe that you do not need God or religion in order to be a good person. That has never happened before. 2008's poll revealed that. In this, this is even more startling. Many people believe that God and religion make you a worse person. Yep. Yep, they do. Many people now describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious. That's the phrase that's used. In other words, I'm good. I have spiritual experiences. I might even believe in God, but I don't hang out with those bad people or do those religious things because that would make me a bad person, and I don't want to be a bad person. I hear that an awful lot. I hear that an awful lot from people under 40, by the way. Yeah. Now, we might say, hey, that's a misperception. That's not true. Absolutely. That's a lot of the conversations that I get to have. But there's an awful lot of people out there singing along with REM. I'm losing my religion. And they are. Mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes it's not even necessarily a bad thing if the religion that they're losing is... Bad in one sense, bad for them and for the world. And if they can find a better God, uh, the better God than the one that they have left behind. See, the problem is that they're partly right. Bad religion does look like that. But that's not the God that we've met. And it's not the faith that we practice here. It's much better than that. Mm-hmm. So we may point out that while there is bad religion indeed, there is also good religion. The word religion, by the way, means re-ligament. It comes from the, the ligaments in our body. It means to connect, reconnect, to heal what has been disjoined or torn apart. Religion is intended to be healing and restorative and uniting. That's its original intention. That's the kind of faith that we preach and practice here. And the God that we talk about, we have found, is a good God too. Not at all like bad religion has often pictured him. And that's what Paul was trying to do that day in Athens. He was glancing up at the temples of the gods up there on the Acropolis. And he was looking in the faces of people weary of their stories about the gods. Remember I mentioned it before, the classical mythology. Do these, do these gods of, of, of ancient Greece inspire you to be a better person at all? Do they make the world a better place? They are simply more powerful versions of spoiled brats. That's <laughs> one of the reasons, by the way, I'm speaking as a historian here now, philosophy, Western philosophy developed in Greece. Mm-hmm. Because their religion was not able to answer the big questions of life for them. Their religion, the, the gods that they had were, were, were not heroes. They were just powerful. And... Um, So philosophy developed in Greece because they were looking for deeper answers, better answers than what their religion was giving them. 
These, Paul is looking into the faces of these people who are tired of the stories of the gods fighting each other. There's five temples up there on that hill because you can't have you can't have one god. You gotta you gotta divide your resources. Well, yeah, because make them the, all happy. The god that doesn't have a temple will get mad at you and smite you. Exactly. Yes. They were weary of bad religion, just like many people are today. They were weary of a divided world, just like we are today. So Paul, Paul spoke to them of one God. One God who made it all. One God who loved everybody. One God of all people. Powerful and mighty, yes, but also humble and near. A good God who wants loving relationships with us. Who gave up power and glory to come here to be with us. Exactly. Yeah. And so Paul talked about that, but he did it in their own words. Yeah. He did it from where they were, even using, as Joanne said, their own poetry. So let's continue Acts 17. This is what he says. The God, one God, who made the world and everything in it, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, this is, this is good. Does not live in temples made by human hands. <laughs> Pointing up there toward the Acropolis. And uh, the, the, the Parthenon is up there. All those yeah. beautiful temples. No, God doesn't live up there. Nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. We don't need the necessary. We don't have to bring our, our food to God because God doesn't eat it. Because he himself gives life and breath and everything to everyone. God is a giver of good things. He's not a taker. Wow. From one man. He doesn't say who that man is yet. But he's introducing the idea. From one man he made every nation of the human race. Ah, All of us are in this together. To inhabit the entire earth, determining in their set times to fix limits of their places where they would live so that they would search for God, because God wants to be known, and perhaps even grope around for him and find him, because God is not playing hide and seek. He's not trying to stay distance from us, distant from us, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move about and exist. We are already in him. He is already among us. For even as some of your own poets have said, and then he quotes one of them, for we too are his offspring. Ah, it's not just God out there. It's God here. And it's not just God here. It's God loves us. And it's not just God loves us. We are his own children. We have been made by this God. And for the Athenians, we might say, hey, that's not the full gospel message. But Paul's not trying to dump everything on them. He's trying to lead them down the path and help them understand a little bit of of this, this character of this guy. He's having a real conversation with them. Yeah. Not a lecture, not a sermon. And in our own world, we can do something similar. We can emphasize God's goodness more than God's judgment. And how can we do that? Because we've experienced it. Yeah. It's the same thing with the first question. Does God exist? Well, the possibility exists because I've experienced something, and I call that something God. Mm-hmm. I've experienced God's goodness. Let me talk to you about what that feels like. We've received God's grace. We've received God's mercy. We've received God's healing. Let's talk about that. What we ourselves have experienced as a good God. Let's emphasize God being with us, which is why Jesus came, right? That's what Emmanuel means, more than God being against us, which is what people hear too, too often from religion. Yeah. He is not against us. Maybe this is the easiest way to say it. God is great and God is good. And let us thank him for our food. <laughs> and, and, and for life. I was going to say. And for every good everything. gift that God gives. For everything else. Yeah, so are we seeing Paul's attitude is Jesus' attitude. 
He's just continuing not to judge them, not to condemn them. It makes me think of the verse, you know, God so loved John. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him, you know, would not perish but have everlasting life. And we don't go to the next verse. And he did not come into this world to condemn the world. We skip that part. Paul has that attitude. He's not judging or condemning them. He continues to affirm them and what they already know. And Paul can do this because he's not interested in proving himself right. He's not interested in just laying the facts on them and condescending to them. He's interested in only one thing, introducing these wonderful people who God created and loves to the true God who wants relationship with every one of them. That's what he wants. That's what Paul is after. Paul is not that Christian. You know the one who just wants to be right, win the argument, and prove his or her point. No. Paul is applauding them. And he's saying, let's build on what you already know. Let's build on what you already have right. Do you know what? That alone would be a game-changing way for us as Christians to have conversations with other people. Then there's no need for anybody to be defensive. Not them, not us. And so Paul, he had those first two questions, and now he's moving into the next logical question. He's thinking like a philosopher, because he's speaking to philosophers. And so he says, if God exists, and he does, if God is good, and he is, then what is God like? I mean, what do I call this God? In other words, the question, which images or names for God are correct? Let's keep reading. Acts 17. Let's go down to verse 29. So since we are gods, and I want you to also notice something. He's not using Yahweh there. He's not using Jehovah. He's not using Jewish. He's not using Jesus yet or Christos. He's not talking about that. The Greek word there is theos, like we get theology from. God, the true God. So since we are gods, just general, since we're God's offspring, as Tony said, we're all God's children. Again, nothing to get defensive about. Since we're all God's children, since we're all created and given life by God, then we're all in this together. That's what Paul's saying. So, since this is true, we should not think the deity. Okay? Now, theos again. We should not think the God. What he's starting to do is say, hmm, now I'm going to give you something of what I know. See all this? All these gods? Good ideas, maybe. Interesting to talk about. There's one God. There's only one. The God. God. We should not think the God is like gold or silver or stone, an image, a likeness made by human skill and imagination. And literally here it's human thoughts, ideas. He's saying your ideas are fine and dandy. But this, this, these images, these altars, all of this, temples, statues, that's not what God is like. That's human. Therefore, Although God has overlooked such times of ignorance, this phrase has been so misunderstood. 
All it says literally, although God has deliberately not paid attention to such times of unknowing, of not knowing. In the past, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. Let's unpack this a little. What's God like? Well, Paul says, since God is the creator, God's beyond what has been created, including us. Makes good logical sense. No amount of human skill, thought, or imagination could possibly produce any image that would be close to what God is really like. Again, they're going to agree with that because that is, makes good rational sense. But God knew what humans couldn't know. And because God knew in the past we didn't know and couldn't know it, he didn't hold our inability to know against us in the past. But now, God's made himself knowable. And he commands all of us to repent. This is so important. How do you do this in 30 seconds? Repent, we've been taught, I know I was when I first became a Christian. The word repent does, it's a Latin-based word, Latin-based word, and it literally does mean you're going in one direction and then you could reconsider and come back. It's a fine word. That's not, it's not a Latin word. This is Greek. He, can, he commands all of us to metanoing. It's a word, metanoia. It comes from metanoia. What does that mean? Meta, like meta-narrative, right? Meta means above or beyond. Noose, knowing noose, human thinking. He's telling these philosophers, they're agreeing with him, and then he gets to the punchline. Right, God overlooked our inability to know God in the past, but right now, he's commanding all of us to get beyond our human ideas, to let our minds break open because the God has made himself knowable to us. God's commanding us to move beyond our partial, limited human thinking and thinking that we can actually know everything there is to know about God. We can't. Repent means allow your human images and paradigms to break open so that God can reveal himself to you in a way that's more real than any altar or any statue or any human idea. Are we together? This is so cool. I'll tell you, I have conversations like this all the time. I, that word opens up all kinds of conversations. It's so easy to share. What's God like? <coughs> well, build on what they already know. God's not like any, anything that the human mind can conceive or human hands can make. God's not a thing. God's a person. God's not our idea. God's our identity. If you want to know what God is like, open your mind and your heart. Open your eyes. God's already here. You just haven't known how to perceive him. But if you'll repent, if you'll metanoia, if you'll move beyond your limited human images and ideas about God, you will see him revealed in and through what he's created, and that includes yourself. 
your own life, your own experience. You're, and you'll experience that it's not what we make, it's not what we think that is really real. You'll experience that it's what's invisible that's most like him. Love, beauty, see these are all the things that the Greek philosophers, yeah, what he's doing is take love, beauty, mercy, creativity itself, the, the very fact that we have ideas. Showing there's something more, there's someone more than us. He's got them at this point. They, he is speaking their language. And as far as what to call God, well, like Tony said, Paul doesn't go there with them yet. He doesn't mention Jesus' name at all in this conversation. He refers to Adam from one man. We all came. And he, he does talk about a man, another man, that God raised from the dead as proof that he's God later on in the conversation. See, Paul wants to have further conversation with them. He doesn't want to turn them off and send them away right away and get dismissed. See, this is a good reminder for us today in our conversation to realize that unlike the past, rarely today do people come to faith in one conversation. Rarely. So they need conversations in which we're not forcing Jesus into their faces against their will. in which we're allowing God to slowly increase their curiosity, their desire to know him. This means being aware, for example, that there are over a hundred names for God in the Bible. So what are we calling? Well, there's over a hundred names just in the Bible. And most of them are names that God gave himself as he was interacting with people, you know, names that revealed aspects of, of his divine being to them, to us. Through the scriptures, for example, I love it. Sean is always just like so, the spirit keeps us together. Uh, Sean, during worship, mentioned Moses at the burning bush. Yeah. He says, I'm going to go free your people in Egypt. Like, who, should, who are you? Um, what name should I use? And God said, Yahweh, I'm Yahweh. I'm the self-existent one. I am that I am. Back in the beginning of the story, before Abraham was Abram, he was Abram, God appeared to Abram, and he said, I am El Shaddai. I'm the Almighty God. I can do things you can't even imagine. So many names. God also, God revealed names, you know. But um, God was also named by a few folks in the Bible. He received the names as his own that a few people gave him, like David. The Lord is my shepherd, Jehovah Rohi. Okay, God's like, that's true. Okay, David, I'm your shepherd and everyone else's. And Jesus even says that. He's the good shepherd. What about Hagar, the slave that Abraham used because it was going a little too long before Sarah was getting pregnant. Slave Hagar got pregnant. Sarah didn't like that. She was sent pregnant alone out into the desert. And we, as we often just read over this part, pregnant with Abraham's son Ishmael. 
And out there in the desert, with no food, nothing, she was met by God. And God cared for her and gave her promises. So she named God. She said, you're El Roy. You're the God who sees me. This is Genesis 16, I think. Yeah. So in our conversations, can we recognize that God is described in many ways in Scripture? And they're all right. (coughs) They're all right. So for some people, the God who sees me might be the name of God, the, the way that God is relating to them that matters to them. And how dare we come along and say, no, see, it's El Shaddai for me. So it's got to be El Shaddai for you. No, that is not a humble heart and attitude like Jesus or Paul had. Or even God who received names from us. So in our conversations, let's, re- let's remember this. The Bible contains so many different names and, and images of God, and that gives us such freedom to offer every person that we talk to the names and the images of God which will connect mostly deeply with them. It also causes us to want to be sensitive. Be careful about using words like father to describe God to people who were abandoned or abused by their fathers. What does that mean? It means you need to actually know that person and not just be preaching some canned evangelism speech at them. You need to know their lives enough to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to say, How are you for them? Who are you for them? We don't want to use a name like Jehovah Jireh. God provides. Is it true? Yes. But for someone who has lived in poverty their entire life and experienced only deprivation, that is not going to cause them to be drawn in. It might just bring up more questions. Are those names of God true? Yes. All, all, all Paul is, is modeling for us is let's be compassionate. Let's ask God to take things slowly and give us biblical images, biblical names that'll draw people toward him rather than push him away. Yeah, are we together? Yeah. There's one more question. I'm gonna do, give the uh, Reader's Digest version of this one, given uh, where oh we're at this, at this time. Uh, but I think we can do this fairly simply. Is there more than one God? See, we Christians believe in something called the Trinity. And that confuses the daylights out of other people. You know, how many gods you got going on in here a little bit? Uh, Part of the good news is that Jesus never required anybody to believe in the Trinity in order to follow him. He never even required anybody to believe that he was God. He would always say, follow me first. And along the way, by the way, you'll figure out a little bit more who I am. And over time, they did. But it wasn't that we had to have all of these mysteries figured out. And the Trinity is one of those mysteries. It took the church several centuries to come to that belief. It was the fourth century. Yeah. One God in three what? They'd eventually decided on the word persons. Do they disagree with one another? They eventually decided no, they didn't. They were all united, one will, one desire. Is one of them more important than the others? No, they concluded that they were equal just as we are equal in the body of Christ. Do they do different things? They said, yeah. They called one creator, one redeemer, and one sustainer of life. But then they also said, yeah, but they all do that, (laughs) at least a little bit. All three are God. 
The church has tended over the centuries to call them Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus called them. But they also recognize that those are metaphors or human words. They're inadequate for the mystery of God and the fact that human words change their meaning over time. Do you know that ghost and spirit have switched meanings over the centuries? So for a long time, the church talked about the Holy Ghost. Right now, that just, that, just, that just freaks people out. The, the spirit does not haunt us. The spirit inhabits us, okay? Sometimes it feels like that. What I have found most helpful in talking to people about the Trinity is to do what Paul did for the Athens, which is to direct them to the one who came to earth as a human, Jesus. This is what he said. After talking about the good God, he talked to them about the good man, who had died and been resurrected. He has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness, good judgment, not nasty stuff, by a man whom he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead, which of course would have got their attention. And the Greeks were really into human bodies. So raising a human body from the dead would have been very interesting to them. So he starts talking about Jesus without his name yet. Now, why does he do that? Well, because Jesus is a central part of good news. But it's also kind of hard to not like Jesus. <laughs> right. I mean, if you read him and experience him for who he really is, whenever I talk to atheists, agnostics, spiritual, but not religious, even people hostile to the faith, I almost always direct them to Jesus with this encouragement. Whatever critique of bad religion you have, Jesus probably had it too. Mm-hmm. That's why Jesus argued with the Pharisees so much. They were practicing a faith that made God out to be pretty ugly. They did things that harmed people that God loved. So Jesus spoke instead of that good God, that good God who loves us, wants intimacy with us, would even die for us. That's gospel. That's good news. I don't think people need to understand the Trinity in order to understand that good news of the gospel. Maybe they'll get to it eventually. Maybe you and I don't even need to have it all figured out in order to be able to tell people about that, to know that Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. So maybe people don't need to hear so much about his divinity and all the, uh, the mysteries of doctrine, although they're true, yeah. and more about his humanity and how he shows the rest of us how to live the life that God has planned for us. Yeah, Oof, that was fun. So much more to say, so the series will continue next week, but for now, Um, just want to close with some real practical advice about having conversations about God. Just kiss them. K-I-S-S. Keep it simple. We don't want to say keep it simple stupid. (laughs) Keep it simple saints. Just keep it simple saints. Follow Paul's example who was following Jesus' example. Trust you don't have to pre-think at all, that you don't have to have answers. In fact, it might be more endearing if you don't have all the answers. Um, Just see and listen to everyone around you, as God does. Be gentle and humble as Jesus is. Trust the Holy Spirit to give you whatever words the other person may need to hear. Um, And, uh, you know, although most of the time it's enough to listen um, and offer what speaks you, you can offer what speaks loudest, as Tony was saying. Your own love story with God. Your own deep experience with Christ and the difference it's made in your life. Um, as anyone who has ever been in love knows, it is not hard to talk about your beloved. Let's go with that attitude about our beloved. 
in conversations with others about God. So do that. Let your love speak. And what others will hear is this. God's better than you could ever imagine. Let's continue to talk about it. Amen? All right. I want to just, let's pray. Lord God, you are love. And Jesus, you are the embodiment of love. We know what true love is because you loved us first. And your love never fails and your love will never end. You love us all. Specifically and sacrificially. You love us in our sin and brokenness. You love us even in the pain we inflict on others. You love us with an everlasting love. And it's that love, that selfless, self-sacrificing love, which allows us to love others like you do, Lord. We long to love as you do. We ask that your love would overflow from us to those around us. We want our words about you to overflow. With that love, please give us your heart and give us opportunities to have living conversations about you this week. Give us your gentleness. Give us your wisdom. Give us your mind, Jesus. Break our minds open. Give us your minds. And give them curiosity and openness. Let them feel safe with us, Lord. And give us all what we all need most, more and more and more of your love. In the name beyond all names, Jesus our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen? Amen. Thank you.